0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Radio, radio this is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis That's and
1: current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 830 30am.
2: Double.
3: And good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast. And in the studio with me this morning is Malika and Priya. Welcome.
0: Good m- yeah, good morning, Carly. Good morning, Carly. Um, it is just past 7.03 in the morning. Um, And we are almost at the end of July. It's Thursday, the 29th of July. Um, Yeah, it's uh, a chilly morning, but we're hoping that you're all doing as well as possible coming out of lockdown, staying Mm -hmm. safe, uh, checking in on exposure sites, making sure that you're getting tested if you have any symptoms, and most importantly, getting vaccinated if you're eligible. Um, It's uh, probably the best way that we can beat this is by all of us working together to, to take care of our communities, so make sure that you check on uh, the Victorian Government Department of Health website for exposure sites and, and information about vaccination as well. Um, so I guess we've got uh, we've got a great show for you today. We always have a great f- show for you. That's why you that's why you listen to us. Um, do you, shall we jump into a rundown? Yeah.
3: yeah, sounds good, Priya.
0: All right. So first up, um, we are. Um, I guess we were thinking about all of the incredible uh, skateboarding that's happening at the Olympics. Um, so many young women just crushing it. Um, 13-year-olds getting gold and silver, 16-year-old getting the bronze. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that when we play the episode. But um, on the 3rd of May, uh, I did an episode for 3CR's Women on the Line program where I caught up with Dr. Indigo Willing and Emily Kofoa to talk about how skateboarders are shifting the conversation on consent, anti-racism, and inclusivity in so-called Australia. And Dr. Indigo Willing is a Vietnamese sociologist and skateboarder and co-founder of both We Skate Queensland and Consent is Rad, based in Minjin on Yagaran Turbul land. And Emily Kafoa is a Bundjalung skater and a Minjung Bull girl from Tweed Heads and is the founder of Girl Skate Gold Coast as well as a new ambassador for the First Nations skate team Songline Skateboarding. And um, just by the way, you can catch women on the line on 3CR on Mondays from 8.30 to 9am after breakfast. Um,
4: Yeah. Um, we they're going to be speaking to Anna Piper-Scott, who is a Melbourne-based stand-up comedian. Um, A trans woman of remarkable wit and social insight, Anna is a skilled writer and bold performer. Her comedy is incisive, relatable, well-crafted and flat-out funny. She will be joining us to discuss the slow reopening of the arts in Melbourne and the impact it has had on performers and other workers.
0: Um, and then after that, we're going to be joined by Dr. David Kelly, who's a research fellow at the Center for Urban Research at RMIT and an organizer with the Safe Public Housing Collective. And he's joining us to talk about Safe Public Housing Collective's newly launched map, which plots public housing decline in Victoria. And you can find that map and more information about the collective at safepublichousing.com. And this is intended as a community resource. So I hope you get to listen into that interview and then see how you're able to engage with it yourself.
3: And then lastly, Uncle Bobby Nichols is going to um, join us on the show, so he's a proud Yoda- Yoda Jaja Rorang and Watchchaabaok man and a founding member of the Ylanguth Working Group, and he's going to join us to discuss the Ylanguoth app, an audio augmented reality experience that connects people to place and history through geolocated soundscapes and stories told by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities.
0: Yeah. It's um it's really lovely. We're going to be able to play a couple of little sound bites from the app as well. So we mm-hmm. hope you enjoy.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we might go to some community service announcements and then...
0: Come yeah. back for headlines.
3: Yeah, sounds good.
5: So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign
0: for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues.
6: What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home?
0: Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced Produced by by Jan.
4: Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, um, and you're joining Priya, Kali, and Malika in the radio this morning. Um, so yeah, we're just gonna kick it off with some headlines this morning. Um, firstly, the Northern Territory government has reached a $35 million settlement with young people who claim to have been mistreated while in youth detention in Northern territory. A statement from law firm Maurice Blackburn said the settlement was historic and that around 1,200 people could be eligible for a share in this compensation. The class action applies to young people who spent time in Northern Territory youth detention centres between 2006 and 2017 and was settled with a denial of liability from the Northern Territory government in May 2021. The Maurice Blackburn lawyer Ben Slade said the outcome was an important acknowledgement of the pain caused to children in the Northern Territories' youth detention facilities.
0: Yeah. Um, next up, uh, we've got some exciting news coming out of Sydney. So, if you haven't been following uh, the Raf Wu account on Twitter, um, you can, I guess. Hear about it here and read about it on The Guardian. There's a long, there's a long read there that really takes you through this case. And this is about the Newtown bookstore, Better Read Than Dead. Um, and workers there have engaged in a historic action where they were fighting for their first ever enterprise agreement, uh, to secure the most basic provisions, basically safety policies covering bullying, workplace harassment, discrimination, job security rights, um, including conversion from casual to part-time employment protections in case of redundancies and a living wage of $25 per hour. And they've actually succeeded with this industrial action. Um, So members have unanimously endorsed an in-principle agreement with Better Red Than Dead management. And this happened, I think, a couple of days ago. Um, And basically, it's been a massive success. Um, It's been a landmark agreement with historic conditions in the retail sector. So including those uh, demands from before, there's also uh, a minimum four weeks consultation over major changes, six weeks notice of any redundancy, rights to deployment and severance pay, um, abolition of junior rates, full restoration of 100% penalty work, 26 weeks uh, paid parental leave, which is quite massive for uh, the retail sector. So you know these conditions, as um, as Better Red than Dead uh, organizing members have mentioned, are far superior to any major retail or fast food agreement in Australia and it really shows what's possible when workers organise in a fighting union and implement direct, unwavering, protected industrial action. Um, they also have a chuffed page where they were raising welfare support for WAFW members at Better Red Than Dead and um, funds are still going towards workers including those who were sacked for uni- unionising as cases are prosecuted and any unspent funds will be reserved for welfare support for other members engaged in future industrial action, So you can find that by looking up Welfare Support Fund for RAFFWU members at Better Red Than Dead on shaft
3: And about 250 people have marched to demand answers from New South Wales Police about what happened to a young Aboriginal man who has been missing for 18 days since he allegedly ran from police and went into the Gwida River. Um, so this young man um, just... Letting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners know that he is missing. um, 22-year-old Gomorrah man, Gordon Copeland. And he's been missing since Saturday, 10th of July, after last being seen by police. Um, Hundreds of people, including his extended family and his partner, marched through the main streets of Moree in northwest New South Wales, chanting, resume the search, and Gordon's life matters, amid claims he was pursued by police before jumping into the river
0: yeah and um in some community news as well um the the search for Uh, Imabile Manakariza, who's a soul singer from Melbourne has stretched past a month this is from a media release that was put out yesterday on the 28th of July um, by loved ones who are uh, searching for Imabile he was last seen at 1.30pm on Wednesday the 23rd of June 2021 at Gordon O'Keefe Reserve in Werribee wearing a camo jacket black pants a black Converse bag and high top black sneakers with his hair in a loose ponytail Um, family and friends have been looking desperately for him and um, police have been uh, assisting the search now as well uh, with detectives following up on leads so if anybody sees him or has any contact with him since wednesday the 23rd of june please call finding Immobile hotline on 1-800-717-568 that's 1-800-717-568 and if possible, uh, family and friends are asking to respectfully take a photo of the person that you believe to be Imabile for identification purposes. And you can also um, yeah, find out more information and follow the search on Instagram at at finding That's finding dot So please keep an eye out. And uh, we're holding uh, his family and loved ones in our thoughts.
3: Yeah, and if any of the stories that we've just shared are distressing, feel free to call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. That number for Lifeline is one three one 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 four. And now we're going to play a track by Budjara. So this one is Missing You.
6: to die freely, before we all turn to dust, won't you come see me, I've been missing you clearly, I've been missing you clearly, are we strong enough, when we live long enough, to die freely, before we all turn to dust, won't you come see me,
7: when will my patience run out, not and the limits to
0: You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 718 in the morning and you just heard Missing You by Bajra. Um, So now we're going to go into a pretty awesome interview that I did on Women on the Line um on the 3rd of May. And this is about skateboarding. So just to sort of get into that, uh, we wanted, like the reason we wanted to replay it is because <laughs> skateboarding is uh, now an Olympic sport.
3: Yeah, yeah. And earlier on in the week, um, Mojimi um, Nishia, so she's a young Japanese skateboarder at 13. She won the Olympic title in the women's uh, street skateboarding competition. And also the silver medalist was also a young 13-year-old. Yeah, um, Rosa right Leal. As well as, um, yeah, another young 16-year-old won bronze. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's actually been not that... I think any of us at Three Start Thursday Breakfast are particularly watching the Olympics or support the Olympics, um, but, yeah, just the fact that all of these young women are really, like, shredding it up um, has yeah. been incredible.
0: It's so it's so awesome, and especially, like, it made me think of the interview um, with Dr. Indigo Willing and Emily Kafoa that we're going to play part of next, because... Um, they really talked about how skateboarders are starting to shift this conversation on consent and anti-racism and inclusivity within skate communities. Um, so it is really awesome to be able to think about that in the context of skateboarding now having a platform at the Olympics and the sorts of conversations that can now be made, um, I guess, even more possible um, off the back of the awesome community organizing work that a lot of skateboarders are doing already. And also just um, wanted to say it's a pretty uh, stark contrast to the men's street podium where the youngest uh, gold medal or the the gold medalist was also japanese yuto horigome um and the youngest was 20 years old that that medaled there but everyone um was in their teens in um in the women's street skateboarding it just shows the amazing things that um yeah young women are doing in the skateboarding world um so without further ado let's go to that interview <laughs> speaking with Dr. Indigo Willing, she, her, who's a Vietnamese sociologist and skateboarder and a co-founder of We Skate Queensland and also a co-founder of Consent is Rad. And she's based in Minjin on Yuggera and Turbo land. And we're also joined by Emily Kafua, who's a Banjalong skater, Minjin girl from Tweed Heads, founder of Girl Skate Gold Coast. And she's the only female member of the Songline skate team where she is a new ambassador. So, Emily and Indigo, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So, I thought we could kick it off um, with both of you self-introducing um, a little bit more. So, maybe we can go into who you are and maybe your favorite thing about skateboarding. Uh, Emily, do you want to start?
5: Um, all right. I'm Emily. I'm the founder of Girls Skate Girl, Girl The thing I love about skateboarding is that you don't get judged and I've literally like Skateboarding is just the best thing ever. It's literally saved my life. Like, I suffer from, um, depression and anxiety and stuff like that. So, yeah, skateboarding saved my life. And I've met some of the best people. Indigo is one of them. And, yeah, it's just, it's the best. Yeah,
0: I love that. Um, and Indigo?
5: Yeah, so, I totally
1: love skateboarding. It makes no sense why I would love skateboarding because I started when I was a, um 41-year-old mum and the scene is just so accepting that you can do that you can literally just walk in and as long as you give it a go you'll find great friends second family often a you know surrogate family for you in skateboarding and I have done a number of events with Emily and Girl Skate Gold Coast we uh, collaborate quite a bit so with We Skate Queensland uh, which was originally Girl Skate Brisbane and we've expanded that Uh, To be more inclusive, we're going to do an event, an art event soon, uh, concentrating on just not complying and being rebels and just being yourself and encouraging the LGBTIQ uh, community and youth just to really change the way that skateboarding, all the stereotypes and just making it a safe space and a really bad culture.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think, you know, that sort of approach really structures what we're gonna talk about today and the sort of pushing pushing boundaries and increasing inclusivity um in, in skate culture. So um I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what mainstream skate culture is kinda of like in so called Australia. So including issues around things like barriers to access, safety, concerns about racism. Um did either of you wanna to speak to that?
1: Because M's on the Gold Coast. And I'm in Brisbane, and although skateboarding shares a lot of stuff in common, there they can be different scenes. So um, in Brisbane it's um, a, a very macho culture, a lot of dudes. Um, you know we're not near a beach, so we don't have people that might surf and then come and skateboard as well, and more mixed genders it's It's predominantly been uh, the skate shops have been represented by the dudes, the you know the media, um, you go to the park. Uh, for a long time, the dudes would definitely be the most largest, uh, group of population there. And it's not, it's not Melbourne and Sydney where it's, you know, sort of, um, I don't know a bit more sort of, I don't know, got hipsters or something. It's, just, it's pretty real here and it's great. But I think in, in my scene anyway, the, the mainstream culture there hasn't had an understanding or had much space not not unwillingly but it just hasn't had much presence by any other genders but the dudes so yeah it's been it's been interesting and it's it's quickly changing now because of social media it's pretty easy to put something on instagram or facebook and get a whole bunch of people to come down and try skateboarding now but in the past really you had to you know you had to be pretty tough and you had to yeah hold your own a bit in skateboarding here but everyone was very lovely yeah so the mainstream culture yeah definitely um sort of you know yeah, as you'd expect in Thrasher magazine and that kind of thing. What, you, Anne?
5: Yeah, I agree with you with, like, um Gold Coast and Brisbane. It's definitely a different, um like, skateboarding, we all a big family. But, like, what you said, you know, it's a different kind of scene. It's more macho, definitely, in Brisbane. It's changing a lot, though. I remember, like, because I've skated since I was, like, probably about eight grew mm. up, and I was probably about there was another one other girl in Tweed that skated, and we used to get picked on like a lot, you know, because we were the only girls. And I remember, you know, but the, the the shops were pretty good and stuff. But since I've come back into skating, I've noticed how many girls are finally, you know, getting into it, and they're they're going hard too, and they're going mm. be- like not better, but pretty pretty good, like. Mm. Mm-hmm guys and that you know what i mean like in such a young age and stuff like it's crazy things are changing which is good like when i was um i remember one thing that my mum told me when i was about 14 when i was in my prime of skateboarding and she said um because she was she was like what do you want to be when you grow up em and i was like a pro skater or you know something just skating and she said no girls don't skate mm. it's a men's nice thing mm. and you know that kind of like threw me off a bit but as I've grown up I'm like no way skateboarding to everyone so yeah. yeah
0: and I mean that's definitely been a massive part of um, the community work that you both do in trying to build up these spaces to to let people know that skateboarding is for everybody um, so what has it been like to, to either found or, or develop further some of these inclusive skate crews where you are so um, whether it's in Brisbane or the Gold Coast um, Indigo?
1: Well I think there's a, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of ways that, uh, Emily and I support, um, what we try and do. And that is to try and put the spotlight on all types of skateboarders. So, uh, definitely with, um, Emily and she can talk to this. She has like a team where she highlights, you know, various, um, girl skateboarders that are just killing it. The, the, the skills level of the little girls blows everybody away. And this macho culture that we're talking about, you know, previously I think the, the men didn't, not for their own fault, but they didn't have high expectations of the skills of the girls. And now they're finding that the girls come and, you know, just shred and like leave their chicks behind the dead. <laughs> it's really funny <laughs> to watch their like mouths just like, you know, drop. Yeah, the, the opportunities that we've tried to do, and I, 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 um, collaborate on We Skate Queensland with a group of others. So it's co-founded by Tora Waldron who's from the Gold Coast, Evie Ryder, who's from Brisbane. We've got some new faces in the scene, like Millie Mildravec, who's from Brisbane. So there's a bunch of us, and we're all different um, ages. We've got different backgrounds. We all bring different community experiences to the group that can really, uh, yeah, sort of make it more uh, in- inclusive for as many people as we we, we try to anyway. And we've been working with a lot of, uh, new groups that are popping up in Brisbane, like inclusive skateboarding and death to discrimination. Big focus on, um, gender fluid, non-binary, gender non-conforming, borders And really just trying to evolve with, um, the people that are coming in and want to
5: skate and making that space everybody's. It's been the best thing that I've decided to do was, um, you know, make, do girls skate Gold Coast. Like I, I don't know if like I've I've noticed a lot more females and um stuff getting out to skate parks and that now since you know posting um the girls skate gold coast stuff in pizzy and that like when I first started going there was not that many girls but now it's like getting over overridden by girls and the girls scene is is blowing up massive as well which is a good thing uh, that's one thing that um we want in the Indigenous as well, like in the Songlines thing, is to get more girls involved, Indigenous girls.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Emily, actually, do you want to um, talk about Songline a bit more? So what does Songline Skateboarding <clears throat> do?
5: Songline Skateboarding is a First Nations skateboarding team, and it's the first one ever. So we're trying to get as much, like, the exposure out there um, but a lot of, a lot of big, like a few companies, uh, posted and sharing all that stuff and all that, like, um, I was meant to be going to WA for the Rumble on Rockingham, but unfortunately, cause of the COVID stuff and all that, um, I couldn't go, but I'll be going to the next one, but this, this one at, um, in WA, they'll be having a, a pretty big turnout for the indigenous skaters, which, yeah, it'll be good to see. And we want to focus on, um, you know, giving back to community as well because we want to go out to remote where, you know, they don't have the access to things that we do, like um, skateboards and all that kind of stuff. So me and Josh Werribone, who's, he's the founder of Songline Skate Team, we want to like get as many skateboards and all that kind of stuff and go out remote and just give them to the young kids and. Because we've got um another friend out there, he runs Spin Effects. Yeah, Spin Effects Yeah, yeah. So, um, and he's got ramps and stuff out there. So, yeah, that's our plan to go do that and give back to community and see how we go from there.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I guess speaking about building positive space indigo um could you tell us a bit about where the anti-racism and consent work that you're doing intersects um with skateboarding and your participation in skate culture
1: sure so the great thing about skateboarding both for uh emily and me, is that it's fun so like the world's pretty shit sometimes and you know you want to change that make it really welcoming but the work is really heavy you know doing that kind of anti-racism work uh, against sexual violence can be really stressful and heavy, right? So through skateboarding, um, it allows us to do what we love and have fun and share a positive message at the same time. So um, with the anti-racism stuff, uh, Skatistan, it's an overseas group have reached out and they're going to be doing some anti-racism work with us um, and other groups, other skateboarding groups as well, looking at how, you know, it's not just inclusion of like saying having a team member you know, or, or three team members that, you know, um aren't just white cis pro heterosexual dudes, but like, you know, who's behind the scenes? So with Girls Skate, Gold Coaster and We Skate, Queensland, you know, the people that are running it, the volunteers, the people that are filming, the people that are being filmed, you know, a lot of diversity there. And I think that's the true anti racism work as well, rather than just, you know, for a moment having a poster and having throwing in some, you know, diverse people. Uh we're trying to like change everything around. Um and you know uh create the spaces rather than just you know being invited to the spaces and having five minutes there and then <laughs> getting <laughs> pushed aside when everyone's had their moment to you know look diverse and stuff so yeah, really, um sort of changing the way that skateboarder has skateboarding has been built to concurrently exist beside the traditional or the most dominant culture, which has been you know um not not that that diverse at all. Always open, it's a punk culture, it's like a do-it-yourself culture, it's welcoming, it's got all these things going for it. But, you know, in terms of allyship, this is something we're all learning all the time. So just trying to create those sort of spaces. So um, with something like Consent is Rad, um, it would have been very easy for us just to target men and, you know, um, only have, say, you know, one particular gender pointed out or one particular gender represented. But what we've tried to do is, um, you know, really get a say from everybody that skateboards, like, you know, what does your community want to say? Um, who from your community wants to be an ambassador and get photographed with, you know, uh, pro-consent education signs? And, um you know, breaking the gender binary, you know, moving that issue from, you know, just men and women to like looking at it, it's like, you know, there are many genders, so you know, sexual violence isn't choosy, it's sort of something that we all need to, you know, sort of concentrate on and do the work, Mm. and different populations don't always get that voice, and so I guess another challenge is trying to, yeah, you know, work out how to make the spaces for that, so just making it up as we go along, which is skateboarding. (laughs)
0: And that was a segment of a May 3rd episode of 3CR's Women on the Line program. And, uh, that was with Dr. Indigo Willing and Emily Kafoa. And we talked about how skateboarders are shifting the, con- the conversation on consent, anti-racism, and inclusivity. And you can catch that at 3cr.org.au slash women on the line for the full episode. And just wanted to mention as well, speaking of breaking past the gender binary, um, that Skateboarder for the United States, uh, Alana Smith, was the first openly non binary person to, commun- uh, to compete for the United States in the Olympics, and they were in the skateboarding category as well. So that's pretty awesome to hear.
4: Very exciting. Um, we're now going to be speaking to Anna Piper Scott, a Melbourne based stand up comedian. A trans woman of remarkable wit and social insight, Anna is also a skilled writer and bold performer. She's joining us this morning to discuss the slow reopening of the arts in Melbourne and the impact it has had on performers and other workers. Good morning, Anna. Hi,
8: thank you for having me.
4: No, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm sad it's not for you to do like a bit of a comedy set this morning, but to talk about something a bit more serious. Um, but yeah, let's let's get into it. Um in, basically, in June last year, the federal government proudly announced their $250 million arts and entertainment package. However, by October, only a fifth of it had been spent, leaving many people in the art sector feeling quite confused and frustrated. Whilst there was a further expansion of this funding, it n- wasn't nearly enough to, needed to support the industry, which had been hard hit by the pandemic. What are your thoughts on the rollout of this package?
8: Well, I think... One of the biggest flaws of the package to start with is that it is targeted entirely at large organisations. Mm. Uh, when I find that the majority of working artists in Australia are sole contractors, uh, they're running their own small businesses. Most of the artists I know that I work with are operating uh, under their own ABN
2: yeah.
8: uh, as a small business. And then all of these packages are targeted towards large organisations like Opera Australia uh, and NIDA and stuff like that, uh, which are definitely deserving of funding, but it's not in any way targeting the people who are most impacted by these snap lockdowns.
2: Mm. You know,
8: uh, most of the people who uh, impact the people who are performing odd gigs here and there, putting yeah. on independent productions as independent producers, which I also do. I'm not just a, a mm-hmm. sound comedian, I also book shows at theatres and. Theaters and Book lineups. I pay other performers, and I do that entirely through self-funding. Mm. And none of these packages are available to a performer like me. Uh, I looked at uh, all the packages that are available to try and find out what was possible. And the the one that they were pitching as, you know, the broadest, most inclusive grant was the Rise Grant. Mm. And for that grant to be eligible for it you had to be earning more than 75000 a year because you had to be registered for what? GST. And that was the lowest threshold that you could have hit. Uh, and if you if you weren't earning enough of that, you had to rely on the same uh, income support packages that were available to everyone else. And all the income support packages available to everyone else are based on hours worked.
2: Mm.
8: So they're funding, uh, you know, all the COVID disaster payments have been like, if you have lost more than eight hours of work, yeah. and for instance, during one of the lockdowns, I lost three gigs that would have paid my rent for the month, and the gigs in total would have been thirty minutes. Oh. So I lost thirty minutes of work, but I didn't lose what most people would earn from thirty minutes. I earned what I lost what most people would earn from more than twenty hours a week mm. you know and and they just the the packages and the support are just not set up to include a significant portion of artists in Australia, especially in Victoria.
4: Yeah, it really sounds like the way the packages were set up weren't really understanding of how people work in the sector and that a lot of the times, you, like you said, it's um, independent contractors, independent workers, and that it's not something that you c- can quantify into like that eight hour work day. Um, like you said, three gigs, even if it's 30 minutes, pays your rent for the month. And that makes it extra hard when you can't meet those criteria, and there aren't really any loopholes or anything around it. So it's really incredibly hard-hitting.
8: And, yeah, and on on top of that, most of the grants were targeted towards long-term projects. Mm. So uh, trying to set up festivals, trying to set up tours, stuff like that, which is, again, vital, important work that needs to happen, but it misses a fundamental hole, which is kind of like most of the people that are being damaged by the lockdowns are the people who've lost income Mm. for that week, for that fortnight, for however long the lockdown is. And then the subsequent lifting of restrictions after. Because mm. that's the other thing that no one really seems to talk about when they talk about lockdowns. Yeah. For most industries, it's like you're not working during this lockdown or you're working from home, then the lockdown lifts and you go back to work.
2: Yeah. Whereas
8: for, you know, if you're in a theatre that's larger than 100 feet in Victoria, you're still kind of in lockdown right now. Yeah. You know, the Cursed Child right now is not going back up. And that is a massive production. That mm. pays a lot of people, and they can't open because of any restrictions. Yeah. You know? So yeah. their lockdown is a lot longer than it is for everyone else's, and the support packages should reflect that. That's lost income for potentially up to two months, mm. three months in some cases, before they are earning what they would be earning in normal
4: time. Mm. That's so true, and I think you make a really important point flagging that For a lot of industries, lockdown and loss of income is for that whatever many week or months period. But for the arts, it's something that just keeps going on and it almost feels indefinite and there's a lot of uncertainty around um, what's kind of going on. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, Like, like it's it's no secret that the reopening of the arts has been slow and extremely challenging post-pandemic. In a recent post on Twitter, you highlighted the differences in the reopening of sports versus the arts um especially um, in light of the most recent lockdown outbreaks in melbourne which were connected to a major sporting event um guy sebastian also shared similar sentiments in a recent interview um sharing and i quote for some reason the arts industry hasn't been treated like a normal industry during this pandemic people in the arts have been made to feel like our jobs aren't real jobs they're not worth considering our industry as something worth taking a risk on what do you think is kind of going on here
8: yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm finding that frustrating as well. And I think, uh, most artists I know are finding that very frustrating that art's are being ignored. And I think a lot of people treat arts as though it's a frivolous hobby that it's just a mm. bunch of, you know, performance artists, poets doing, you know, ridiculous navel gazing, you know, I'm farting to my hat or something like that. Like mm. it's just, uh, and, and arts, depending on which measures use? Uh, the Most recent report that was in the Guardian
2: yeah. put it
8: as uh, 17 billion in uh, as, as, as of the GDP comes from the arts. There's a report from 2017 that actually puts that figure as high as 111 billion dollars mm. coming from the arts, and that that number is 6% of the GDP. And both figures are much higher than sports. Sports is a $14 billion industry. The number of times that I will watch a press conference about a lockdown and the big question after what the restrictions are for this lockdown is what's happening with the AFL this time around? Mm -hmm. Where are the teams going? All that. And AFL is important. I don't want to disregard the AFL. AFL is an important part of Australian culture, important part of the community, and it is a significant industry. But why are those questions not happening for an industry that is literally 17 times as large as the AFL. Mm, AFL
2: mm. At its
8: smallest, potentially 111 times as large as the AFL. Mm. You know, because uh, the, uh, the other thing I saw recently was that, um let's see if I can find that figure, that um the, we sold more tickets, uh, in 2016, this is the last most recent tickets mm. I can find, but there was more attendance for the arts, for live arts performances, than for the AFL, NRL, soccer, super rugby, cricket, and NBL combined. Whoa. Like, people show up for the arts, especially in Victoria. Victoria, in all these reports, is massively overrepresented mm-hmm. compared to other states. The arts industry is based here. So anytime we get locked down, it hits the Australian arts industry harder than it does anywhere else. Yeah. And the most frustrating thing on top of that is that I feel like I constantly have to justify all this to people in terms of numbers, in terms of dollar figures, when the basic fact of it is everyone is coping with the lockdown through art. <laughs> and that should be justification alone, just the cultural importance, completely ignoring the economic significance, mm. the cultural importance of art. Everyone is getting through lockdown by reading books and watching TV shows and listening to music. And I tell you what, even when they go to the AFL, they're still listening to music whilst they're watching the sports games, <laughs> And the sports teams are out there in in outfits that have been designed by some fashion designer somewhere and they're wearing face paint that have been made by some art like if you don't want the art to be funded, stop having art to your sports game. I know. You know, you're not allowed it. <laughs>
4: we'll make that a bit of a slogan if you don't support the arts you're not allowed it at the sports games um but yeah like i'm just sitting here really stunned by that figure that you shared um in terms of like the number of ticket sales and the revenues and yeah it, it all it all kind of adds up and you're just sitting there kind of wondering what's kind of going on um and i guess like just as we start wrapping up for today like going forward what do you hope for the arts industry in terms of support from the government or support from the community?
8: Uh, In terms of the community, I think anyone who cares about the arts and has not had their income significantly impacted Mm. by these lockdowns uh, should be out there buying tickets to whatever artists uh, they can see live Mm. currently. Mm. Um, I personally recommend my own shows. Yes, Uh, I too will recommend, yes. Thank you. Uh But in terms of government support, it would be very good to see something in terms of uh, uh ticket insurance or something like that. Yeah. But if I've put on an event and I've sold, you know, a 100 tickets and that show gets cancelled because of lockdown and they all get automatically refunded, mm. that I have that income that I earned be supplemented by the government because that mm. government the government took that money away from me. That was money I had earned. There was money waiting for me to perform and then it would be in my bank account. Yeah. And they took away my opportunity to claim that money. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and even something like that would be a massive relief to all the small emerging artists who mm. form, like, not not just the, the current, like, groundswell in the art scene, but also the future backbone of the industry. Yeah. Because if without government support, all these emerging artists and producers are going to be the ones that be like, the arts are too hard, you can't sustain yourself, I'm going to go get a job elsewhere, Mm. and there will be no future generation Mm. in arts. And the arts industry is going to become either old, uh, ageing people who are starting to lack their vision and have Mm. just calcified in the industry, or it's going to be rich private school kids who have the trust fund to live off whilst they explore a career in the arts without having to worry about earning money while they do it.
4: Yeah, that's... uh those are all such incredible points and you're right like this we'll probably be seeing the impacts of this pandemic on the arts um industry for like years to come clearly and yeah thank you so much for joining in today and kind of sharing that information and knowledge and wisdom with us today anna and for people um that want to check out anna you can follow her on anna piper scott on instagram but yeah thanks again anna
8: thank you for having me
4: no problem Um, And you're listening to 3CR um, Thursday Morning Breakfast. We just heard from Anna Piper-Scott, a Melbourne-based stand-up comedian, who joined us to speak about the slow reopening of the arts and the impact it has had on performers and other
1: workers. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas.
9: It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed!
0: Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. A
6: proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder.
9: Strong Spirit,
10: First Nations Issues families people and stories from the first Nations perspective Mondays at 1 pm on 3CR proud
6: black man proud black man yet should not wonders
0: You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Um, Just wanted to riff back off Anna Piper Scott before. Some people do want to go out and see people fart into a hat, and that's still the arts, and it's fine, and it's great, and we should support the arts. So follow Anna Piper Scott on Twitter and Instagram to keep um, updated and buy tickets to her shows. Um, So now we are joined by Dr. David Kelly, who's a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and an organiser at the Save Public Housing Collective, who joins us to talk about Save Public Housing Collective's newly launched map, which plots public housing decline in Victoria. So, David, thanks so much for uh, joining us today.
10: Hi, Priya. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no worries. Um, So we've had you on uh, previously and also uh, Professor Libby Porter to talk about public housing decline in Victoria and also the big housing build uh, in Victoria as well. And um, I was wondering if we could start off by talking about how Safe Public Housing uh, Collective's project to map public housing in decline in the state came about and the purpose of doing this kind of mapping.
10: Yeah, so... um It came about largely because we were struggling to keep pace. Um, So the government's policies around public housing and public housing renewal and the state of decline was happening so fast and they were rolling out new renewal sites every week. And we decided that we really needed a way to keep tabs on this because we were holding all the information and the public really didn't know. Um, So we found that we were the only ones keeping tally and the government itself, was losing track of how many renewal sites it had. Um, so really that gave us the impetus to create a map and we decided that what our role could be here is as continuity editors for what the government was doing, um, where they were doing it, how long this had been going on, and just to map the kind of the blow up in the scale in, the re- in recent years. Um, and part of, the, another reason why was we wanted to start archiving what the experiences of people actually was. So displaced people, when they're displaced, they're really hard to find again, um, and their experiences were being lost. So what we wanted to do was tie their experiences to the places where they were displaced from and say this is the human toll of these sorts of policies. Um, and we also wanted to leave a legacy for other groups, so as is the nature with um, various community grassroots campaigns or groups, they come and they go, and what we wanted to do was leave something so that if we ended up um, taking that fate, that someone else could pick up the tool and use it and build upon it and tap into it. So that was kind of our driving force for creating the map.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um it also it's so hard to to sort of capture this as you've mentioned um in terms of just like, you know, looking at media coverage of public housing decline as as minimal as that is to be able to get an idea of the scale and um the breadth of public housing decline and renewal projects um in the state. So um I understand, and please correct me if i 'm wrong that a, a lot of um, public housing developments in this or there was like a big in uh growth of public housing developments in like the sixties and seventies um a big build in that era and I was just wondering when you started uh, sorry when did you start mapping from um, and why did you choose uh the particular time frame that you did to map uh renewal and decline
10: well we're going back to the kind of the mid noughties, so like you know, two thousand five ish, in order to start our mapping of the renewal itself. So the decline is obviously a lot longer than that. But what we found was around the kind of you know, mid two thousands we were seeing disruption in renewal programs and the current style of renewal, what was going on. So the main ones for us was carlton and kensington and then everything kind of flows on from there so carlton and kensington were the very first large scale renewal sites where the government teamed up with private developers sold most of the land to private developers for slashed prices um and then introduced lar- uh, a large proportion like 70 percent approximately of private um 10 10 which were high-income people, usually um, whiter than what the public housing residents were. So it was kind of like, at once, a gentrification of, this, of the place, but also, um, frankly, and like a cleansing of the state, like it was an ethnic cleansing. Um, so we started mapping from then, um, so Carlton Kensington, and then just started kind of like saying, all right, well, what other ones have erupted since then? What has come about? And you had things like the public housing renewal program, but then you also had quiet developments happening up to the side where the government was just basically going and demolishing the an state and then just handing the whole thing over to the private sector. Um, so, yeah, so that's when we started mapping those um, those renewal sites. And we characterize them in different um so We have different categories on mm-hmm. the map. And so we have the, the predominant one is estates that are demolished. Um, And the reason why there's so many of them is that they've been knocked down and nothing's been rebuilt. So these all kind of came about in 2017-ish for the public housing renewal program. And in the four, four and a half years since then, not one dwelling has been commenced. So like no builds have been commenced on any of them sites. So they're just demolished and nothing's happening. They're just sitting there like an empty site. Mm. And then we have... Um, demolition in, project, in, in progress. So um, these are sites that have started the demolition, um, but they m- might be halted due to contamination. So North Melbourne, North Kidd, um Quarren Place and Brunswick, those sorts of estates sat there in a half-decaying, half-ruined state for for a better part of a year or two years. Um, and then demolition... Is another category that we have and this is when residents are displaced and the sites just sit empty. So we have, um, you know, like a lot of the estates really were just cleared out of all their inhabitants and that's the, that's the fastest phase of our renewal program is where they clear out the residents and then they just let the sites sit, they're empty. Um, threatened, demolition threatened. So this is when a redevelopment is announced and then the government move into a consultation phase. And so we see this in sites like Braybrook. So Braybrook's an entire suburb in the west just next to Footscray. And they've announced that we're going to renew the entire suburb, which is approximately 20% public housing. And and that's kind of where they leave it. They just kind of issue the threat. And what we found in, in our research is that When you issue the threat of demolition or eviction or displacement, it almost has the same effect as eviction and displacement. Mm. So you don't actually have to move from the place to experience negative health and mental well-being effects. Um, And then there are a few other categories, such as privatized. Um, These are estates that have already undergone renewal. Um, Free land for build to rent This is an emerging category, and not many people might know what build to rent is, but It's basically when the government owns the land, but hand over the building to a private developer or private housing provider, and they rent it out for market rent. So they get rid of the social housing, the public housing on the estate, and just basically turn it into market rentals. Um, And that's going to become a really common feature of renewal. Um, One of the categories that we're actually probably looking for help with is estates that are being run down because... Almost every estate has been run down. The government doesn't maintain these properties. Um, They spend the least amount of any state in the country on maintenance. So we kind of need help mapping that. We need residents of different estates to say, hey, look, like my elevator hasn't worked in six months and stuff like that. So, yeah, so they're the categories that we're looking
0: at. Yeah. Thank you for going through them, because I think um, it also shows, I guess, in granular detail the different processes by which people are you know both actively and also passively um, forced to uh, or, or forcibly displaced from uh, from public housing and um, I think what you said about the the threat of um, the threat of eviction or renewal um, is is a really important one that I think um, doesn 't really get captured the The idea that even just by issuing Uh, a notice saying that there will be renewal in that area. Um, You've already, you know, basically told people that they're they're sitting on a ticking time bomb. And of course, you know, if if, if they move out of the area, that's probably going to be captured as, you know, voluntary movement um, rather than being forcibly displaced. But, you know, as you know, that's very different um, in practice. So um, I was wondering if you could take us through some of the intention regarding citizen engagement and participation in the map. And you've already mentioned a bit of that around uh, people who live in public housing. But how do other uh, other people engage with this map?
10: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I, I think I hate the word kind of public awareness, but at the same time public awareness is obviously um, one of the minimum goals that we're striving for here to let people know what's going on. Um, local groups on different estates manage their own pages. So, for instance, Asco Vale, they have a group there called Save Asco Vale Estate, and they're on Facebook, Um, and they kind of, like, manage um, the detail and the content that goes onto their site on the estate, so they get issued with, like, a login, and they just kind of go into the system and, and keep tabs on what's going on there. Um And so when new groups on estates or suburbs form, they can also keep tabs on their area and use the platform as a kind of, like, decentralized community resource. Um, the wider public, we're hoping that this sort of happens organically. We're not quite sure what's going to happen, like, who's going to use it. We have sent it around to all of our friends, all of our allies, and all of the different groups that are operating in that kind of loosely housing justice space. And we're hoping that they can just take what they want when they need it, and be able to use it as um, as evidence to kind of, in their if they're lobbying different um, government officials or or politicians, then they can use this as a kind of as an evidence source to say, look, we know this is going on. Look, like this, it's been mapped already. Um, We also think that it's just good community-based research. Mm -hmm. So also get academics like myself who come in and do the research, develop the tool, develop the platform, set it up, and then walk away, and then it never gets maintained. But if it's in the community's hands, and if even um, supporters of public housing, so you don't need to be a, like a tenant or live on an estate to engage with this map or to help build it, um, if you're doing it, then it's got a lot more life in it. It can it can last through the different cycles of research interest that a, that a university might have. Mm. So it's just good to kind of put these tools back in the community's hands and say, here, like you know, this is a community resource, use how you will, engage how you will. Um, so we hope that um, we're not too sure about what it's going to look like, but we're hoping that you know, something more organic might emerge there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, thinking about this at the local level, people, uh, people know or should know, you know, the communities that they live in. And if they want to use this as an organizing resource, for example, even just lobbying their local council to, to take things higher up, um, you know, people can feed into it that way. Um, so yeah, how can people find the map and follow Safe Public Housing Collective's work and then also get involved?
10: Yeah, sure. So the map was launched this week. So the, the URL is map.com at Um and the Save Public Housing Collective are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have a website which is Um and we also meet every four weeks, so lately these have been online, I think that's experience for most people, but um, usually we have them at Walker Street um, which is the public housing estate in Northgate that was demolished, so we have it across the road there at the church. Um, and we have regular working group activities, which we conduct online. So we have like a you know, research group, campaigns group, that sort of thing, where people can tap in and um, see where they fit and see how they want to help. Um, but, yeah, is, we're on all the social media, and we have that map there and there.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you taking us through this and um, and hope that people engage with the resource as well.
10: No worries. Thanks so much, you.
0: All right, and that was an interview with Dr. David Kelly from uh, Save Public Housing Collective, and he's also a research fellow at the Center for Urban Research, and he took us through Save Public Housing Collective's new map, which they have they oh, it's in development, newly launched, and it plots public housing decline and renewal in Victoria, and you can find that and more information about the collective at savepublichousing.com.
6: black man Black man should not wonder.
0: Strong
10: spirit. First nations issues. Families, people, and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1 pm
9: on 3CR. Proud
6: black man. Proud black man,
3: should not wonder.
9: A message from Victoria's Community Sector.
3: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID
1: to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our...
0: Abstinence isn't viable for everyone. Harm reduction saves lives. We're gathered here today to mobilise against the right wing, Bernie Finn. Harm reduction saves.
9: A message from Victoria's community sector.
3: I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are gonna die of COVID.
0: To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
7: I really want to see my mum.
0: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
3: To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play.
10: I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again.
3: So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated.
10: Let's get back to the good things.
3: I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get
9: vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. You're
1: a 3CR supporter.
3: You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. 5. 5 and now joining us on the line is Uncle Bobby Nichols, and he joins us to discuss the Ellen app an audio augmented reality experience that connects people to place and history through geolocated soundscapes and stories told by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Welcome, Uncle Bobby. Thanks so much for joining us.
11: Thank you very much.
3: So can you start off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself?
11: Well, um, my name is Bobby Nichols. Uh, I'm currently on Yorta Yorta Country, which is in Shepparton but I'm also a traditional owner uh, for Dajar Run, which is in Bendigo, Wajipalik, which is in Ocean Kimbula, and I'm also uh, Barapa Barapa, which is in Corrine, uh, northwest of Victoria.
3: And this morning um, you are going to be talking a little bit more about the Yellunguth app, and you're also one of the founding members of the Yellunguth Working Group. So can you tell us a little bit more about what this project is and how it started?
11: Yes, not a problem. But I'd like to also just give a current update on the launch of the app. Um, mm-hmm. Yellinger uh, launch event with the community and the wider public needs to be needed to be postponed due to the lockdown. But that has not stopped us. As of the twenty third uh, of uh, July, uh, you can preview the uh, app in a few different ways until we can reschedule the launch event and celebrations. Um, what is yellinger uh, is a wrong language yellinger means yesterday the Yollinger app is an audio, audio system reality experiences that connects people to places history through geo located uh, land, sans, sorry, landscapes and stories told by everyone across that Islander community in keeping with oral traditions and to minimize the uh, screen, Yolnger is expressed entirely through sound. The overall premises of Yolnger is guided by the words of elders that we need to go back to to go forwards. The first size of Yolnger is in Gertrude Street and is an important meeting home to the rights movements where all community-controlled organisations begin.
3: Fantastic. And we might play um, a little excerpt now of one of the stories that um, have been collected for Yellen Guth. So this is Uncle Archie Roach.
7: Because people came from everywhere. We weren't just one mob, Gunnishmarr, Yorta We were from everywhere, but we made up this community and we loved each other and we were strong together. didn't matter where we came from. And uh, we were Melbourne Blacks. We're Fishroy, Street, Melbourne Blacks, you know, and that's something to be proud of.
3: Um, and so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the process um, of collecting stories from Aboriginal young people who have been trained in audio recording, interviewing and editing, um, and also some of the stories that elders have shared for the app? Can you talk a little bit about this process? Yes.
11: Um, uh, um. Firstly, uh, I'd like to uh, say thanks to uh, to the working group, uh, which is Rio Ellis, uh, Denise McGuinness, Colin Hunter, um, Robbie uh, uh, Bundle, and, including myself, and also Pip and uh, uh, Zoe. Uh, I'd also like to say thanks to Chuck Lane <coughs> <Chuck O'Lain> Restaurant. <coughs> pardon me, which... Uh, which uh, arranged for our young people, uh, Aboriginal uh, uh, youth, to uh, to participate in this uh, particular project. And one of the things that uh, I got out of this, as well as uh, the young people, was is that it was like going back to school again. Um, when we first met, we sat in a circle and we introduced ourselves. But one of the things that came out of that, out of that circle of uh, of talking was that we didn't know that uh, there was a close rela- relationship to uh, to not only myself but also to the younger people as well too because when I spoke about my uh, family and all that sort of stuff, some of the young ones uh, said, oh, geez, my aunt, uh, that's my auntie, and, and then, then, you know, it was really exciting. But I think one of the things that uh, was important to not only the young people uh, getting this information about the stories of... Uh, of Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, was is that they were the first times listening to um, people like, uh, you know, Uncle Kutcher and Uncle Jack Charles, uh, just to name a, a couple, the stories in terms of what was life like uh, in Fitzroy to uh, them. Because given that, uh, you know, we're living in the 21st century of today, and to hear the old ones talk about, you know, what it was like to live in Fitzroy, and it wasn't like today, uh, it was, you know, you'd have, um, people living in rooming houses, you know, two and three families, uh, uh, sharing one room, uh, as, as, as accommodation. So it was very, very, uh, uh, intriguing to them as to how we survived, especially when you look back now, you know, some, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and you look back today as to what Fitzroy looks like today.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you yourself have also worked for many years in community-run organisations such as the Aborigines Advancement League and the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and the Aboriginal Housing Board of Victoria, yep. um, which all did start in Fitzroy. Um, that's, yeah.
11: That's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, when we look back, um, you know, like uh, our Aboriginal organisations have since relocated to other areas of... of uh, Melbourne Metropolitan, but most of the organisations like the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency was in um, Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Same as with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, um, same as with the Aboriginal Housing Board, uh, which was in Gertrude Street. Um, uh, then you looked at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, they, uh, they started off, and that's one of the oldest organisations uh, outside of the uh, uh, the Aboriginal Advancement League, which is in Thornbury. And they were the the meeting points of when Aboriginal people, not only who lived in Melbourne and uh, uh, Fitzroy, but also for people coming from other parts of the, the, the country as well. Because uh, one of the, uh, I suppose, sites that uh, a lot of Aboriginal people gathered was uh, the Builders Arms Hotel in the corner of Gertrude Street and uh, Law Street. And that was a a meeting place where people socialised people who went there to find, uh, if they came from Sydney or they, from Queensland, uh, you know, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, that was the first place that they'd head to because they knew that if they were looking for someone, someone there would know them. And I remember the uh, the story that uh, Archie Roach uh, told us that when he came back from uh, Sydney, uh, he made his way back into um, Melbourne, uh, into Fitzroy, and he... Uh, he was standing outside talking to some original people and, um, and this lady walked outside and, uh, and she said, I know you, you're my brother. And that's how, um, um, Archie found, uh, uh Alma and, uh, Myrtle, uh, two of his sisters who he hadn't sent for, you know, for years, uh, since he was, uh, taken away. So, so, you know, the stories that we tell and we, and one of the things that, uh, that we like to do is that, that orally we tell our stories, but we've never been a, a great one for recording or storing the information. So, so this is just one way of um, of actually talking about the history of Aboriginal people, but it's also uh, storing the information so that we've got it there for generations to come.
3: Yeah. It's an absolutely incredible project. And now we might play um, some more excerpts from the Ellen Guth app. So we're going to play a segment from Auntie Rio Ellis and also Denise
11: McGuinness. We had nothing else but to fight for our rights. Nowadays, we're sort of given all this gammon money. Gammon don't have to fight. But I still say, you know, keep that fire in your belly because the fight's not over.
1: I remember working at the house centre... We didn't even have funding, but we still came to work because we knew our mob needed us. And that's what I mean, community, like we still had a feed, like I was able to feed my kids and, you know, because they just had that community spirit. And you can't beat that, hey, you can't beat community spirit.
3: Yeah, I absolutely agree with Auntie Denise McGuinness. You can't beat community spirit. And some of the stories and soundscapes through the Yellen Guth app are going to take listeners back to pre-colonial times whilst others will take people through the black GST protests. Um, or, you know, there's also going to be some stories of intimate personal reflection on family finding, um, like you just described with Uncle uh, Uncle Archie Roach. Um what other stories do you think um, really stood out that came to light during this project?
11: I, I think uh, one of the things that really stands out to me is that uh, the, the, uh, the elders and the young people talking about, you know, what it's it like? And uh, stories that come to me is by people like um, the Doug Nichols, um, the Marge Tuckers, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the um, Alma Thorpe, uh, the Bruce McGuinnesses, uh, you know, the Stuart Murrays, uh, they were the ones in terms of the trailblazing, in terms of ensuring that um, that made, um, you know, Victorians probably one of the uh, proactive people in terms of fighting for human rights uh, for Aboriginal people uh, because without some of them, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I, I reflect back on, like, Archie and... Uh, and uh, Jack Charles and all them, like, you know, uh, you look at the Marge Tucker, uh, you know, she was the one that seen how you know, government or the Protection Board back in those days was uh, taking children away from their parents and whatever like that. So that ends the reasons why the uh, Aboriginal Child Care Agency was, was established uh, because of because of that. But it's also in regards to... You know, like you now I, I I see that uh, Victoria was probably one of the front runners in terms of leading political fights uh, for Aboriginal rights, um you now for not only for Victoria but for the whole of Australia, for Aboriginal trusted homeless people.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I just can't wait. Um, for actually, for myself to listen to some of this audio from the Yalunguth app. So, could you just tell listeners again, um, how we can listen? Because I know that there was meant to be a launch, um, through the Gertrude Projection Festival, but because of the recent lockdown, that had to be postponed.
11: Yes, look, if you uh, if you get, get down to Fitzroy, you can download the app uh, from the App Store and Google and. And uh, you need to be in uh, at Gertrude Street Fitzroy to use the app. If it's tricky to get to Fitzroy, follow Yellingship on Facebook and Instagram. We're releasing sneak uh, peeks of the app, beautiful stories, poems, songs, and doing some live feeds from Gertrude Street until the, the reschedule of the public launch event. So basically, on uh, you can go to our website www au or Facebook uh, slash uh, Yellenguth or Instagram uh, at
3: Yellenguth. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Uncle Bobby Nichols, for joining us this morning to speak about the Yellenguth app. And I think we're going to leave listeners with a poem recited by John Harding um, called Auntie Gertie. So thanks so much.
11: Thank you very much.
9: I heard an ABC TV reporter describe my hood as having a Chicago-like atmosphere when I was younger. What does that even mean? What does it conjure this comment that comes from a place of fear? This man in his bad 80s suit had never witnessed what I have seen play out. Thus his news bite to sum up the result of 100,000 years of love. A fear bite to diss us "'an attempt to soil the linen of our souls. "'Let me take you down, Gertrude Street, my auntie Gertie. "'Come on this annual stroll with me. "'I will show you markers from years before "'and new ones that will stand for evermore. "'Bring your ears that you may hear the laughter "'of the Curry children as they played and ran "'down the alleys off Dirty Gertie, Arnie Gertie, "'with those of the migrants who made your shoes "'in the Preston factories.' Their children babysat by my mother for no payment in that three story Gore Street boarding house of love. Fruit and bread was donated by the greengrocer in Smith Street off Auntie Gertie to keep those Kurri kids and migrant kids strong as they ran up and down the alleys off Gertrude Street, their Auntie Gertie. Let me take your white eyes further back as Khaki uniforms of wannabe soldiers arrived from Condor and Cummer and Tyres, with their young wives in George Street off Auntie Gertie, the Gumleaf bands mixing with the bookies who ran up and down the alleys off Auntie Gertie. Let me take you for a walk down Brunswick Street, upon which road the Koorys would walk to Melbourne East, supporting the kind Communists who would gladly resign and strike and die for them to sway a country toward their dark brethren. Those same brethren daily stolen from Auntie Gertie, locked up in Pentridge for their so-called misdemeanours, whose anxieties inside were sated, reminiscing while staring at Elliot Ronald Bull's mural on the blue of Pentridge, a stolen gen man from Gunai Kurnai and Wamba Wamba. Let me take you to the jukeboxes ringing out, the commotion and song supplying fuel for the many interracial forbidden loves, their boots and heels, dancing and drowning out the cheers and the whoops and the hollers of the Koori families and the white families' eager encouragement. Now let's hook down here off Dirty Gurdy and I will show you a church but by veneer alone. Uncle Doug had built a house of love, a temple of pride that shone and lit up the suburb in which it sat, rays emanating and reaching black warriors and entertainers from across the world, where Jesus and justice had the same father, and these sons ran up and down the alleys of Auntie Gertie. Now let's sit where the uncles sat in Charcoal Lane and taught the Stolen Gens to find their mums and dads as they returned like homing pigeons to sucker on the breast of their community to come and sit in the lap of Auntie Gertie. Let me show you the place the shields were made, designed by my people from north to south, to give us a voice, to give us a mouth to enable us to speak on law and health and housing and child care and universities and welfare and education and what's right and fair. Almighty monoliths were built here in Artigurty. Let me watch you, white man, as I show you how Marngrook was played by its creators in their woolen, red, black and gold jumpers, washed with love, who plotted and planned their games up and down in the orgs and the pubs, and the parks protected by Auntie Gertie. Unbeatable warriors forged in love, who knew hate was a wasted energy, and whose skills made the leather sing. Then let me take you back to the years of drugs in Auntie Gertie, upon which you now stand with your microphone in your hand. For you now witness the battle weary few who have turned for a crutch, no shame in that, they hurt nobody but themselves. And are surrounded by a hundred thousand years of love, waiting for them to turn and see. They stay in Auntie Gertie for they know that they are safe for now. Now put down your microphone and do not speak of my Auntie Gertie again. You need to turn your head outwards, away from us and at your own, as they wait for you to turn and see what I have already shown. You play at lovers' children, while us. See, ours is growing.
3: And just then we heard John Harding reading his poem, Auntie Gertie, which is featured on the Yellen Guth app.
0: And now we're going to go to a track, and this is from Alice Skye's new album, I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good, Everything Is Great, and you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Everything Is Great by Alice Skye.
2: You and I, were are more than friends And I don't know just how this will end. Everything is great until it's mine Everything is great until not you, it's someone else you see, so I definitely shouldn't let you bother me, I don't want
3: track there was everything is great by Alice Skye. What was that line? Am I really lonely or do I really love you? Wow. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Something to think about. Yeah um but yeah that is off Alice Skye's new album I feel better but I don't feel good and also just a really important reminder from uh, our interview with Anna Piper Scott earlier on is uh, to really support the arts um to make sure that you are you know paying people for their work buying albums um making sure that you're buying tickets to to gigs when they're able to go on again Yeah, so I think this is about all we've got time for today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Um, so maybe we'll just take you through a bit of what we talked about today. So first up, we played the first half of an episode that I did on May the 3rd, uh, on Women on the Line. And I caught up with Dr. Indigo Willing and Emily Kafoa to talk about how skateboarders are shifting the conversation on consent, anti-racism, and inclusivity. And we played this in light of the amazing wins by some young women at the inaugural, uh, skateboarding at Olympics, uh, in Tokyo 2021. Um, where all the three uh, medalists in Women's Street were 16 and under. The silver and gold winners were both 13. Um, and that Dr. Indigo Willing is a Vietnamese sociologist and skateboarder and a co-founder of both We Skate Queensland and Consent is Rad, based in Mingen. And Emily Kafoa is a Bundjalung skater um, and is the founder of Girl Skate Gold Coast, as well as a new ambassador for First Nations skate team and Songline Skateboarding. Um, and you can catch Women on the Line on 3CR on Mondays from 8.30 to 9 a.m. and listen back to that full episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line.
4: We then heard from Anna Piper-Scott, who is a Melbourne-based stand-up comedian, um, and she joined us to discuss the slow reopening of the arts in Melbourne and the impact it has had on performers and other workers, and um, you can keep track of all her insightful thoughts and wisdom um, on her Instagram and Twitter, um, which is Anna Piper-Scott.
0: And then after that, we caught up with Dr. David Kelly, who's a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and an organiser at Save Public Housing Collective, who joined us to talk about Save Public Housing Collective's newly launched map, which plots public housing decline in Victoria. And you can find that and more information about the collective at savepublichousing.com.
3: And then lastly, um, I spoke with Uncle Bobby Nichols, who is a proud Yorta Yorta, Judge Jar and What's man and he's a founding member of the Yelanguth Working Group. Um, And, yeah, we spoke a bit more about the Yelanguth app, which is an audio augmented reality experience that connects people to place in history through geolocated soundscapes and stories told by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And the first site for the app is the area around Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, so definitely check out a little bit more um, about the app at www.yelanguth.com.au and Yalanguth is spout Y-A-L-I-N-G-U-T-H.
0: Yeah, and just a couple of actions and announcements. Um, first of all, uh, Seed Mob has put out a call to Macquarie Bank to respect First Nations communities as uh, Macquarie Group is bankrolling some disastrous fracking projects against the wishes of traditional owners and aboriginal communities across the Northern Territory, and they're a major stakeholder of Empire Energy. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. They're literally called Empire Energy, a company who are rushing ahead to drill and frack across um, a permit area. So head to uh, @seedmob on Instagram to find out more information about that.
3: Great, and I think that's all we have time for on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. See you next week.
4: See you next week. Bye.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.